So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on it, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors. And then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, without water. They sat down to eat a meal. And when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. Sometimes, Things have to fall apart for us to get exactly where God wants us to be. Joseph's story didn't end in the pit. He was raised up, he was sold as a slave, and eventually God took him to Pharaoh's right hand where he functioned in a king-like way and was able to save his family, including his brothers, from a great famine that was to come. Later on, Joseph's father and his family having come to him in Egypt, his brothers would grow concerned at the death of his father that Joseph might have held a grudge for many years and desire to repay evil with evil. And so they come to him in Genesis chapter 50. His brothers also came to him and bowed down before him and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result. The survival of many people. Joseph says, you intended your actions to produce evil. But God was at work even in your evil actions. Bringing me right here. God directed Joseph's steps. God directs our steps. That's the main idea of our text this morning as we turn our attention to Acts chapter 16 and cover the first 10 verses. Main idea is that God directs our steps, and I'm going to exhort you this morning to trust God and act, to trust God and, well, do something rather than nothing outline there before you. We'll talk about how God ordains our relationships and then how God changes 
our plans. Let's pray and we'll get into the text together. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us through it now. That you would help us to listen well. That you would help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. And that we might all, as a result, be more Christ-like as the consequence of this time we've spent together in worship before you this morning. Indeed, God, you are immortal, invisible, and glorious. You are worth every bit of our attention. And so we ask that you would speak to us, Lord, because we, your people, listen. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Acts, and we've said in Acts, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And we've seen this happen. Jesus has ascended to the throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and has poured out his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit, having filled up his church, empowers the church to witness in Jerusalem in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, just as Jesus said. Indeed, Jesus is building his church, and yet the church is still full of sinners. We've seen quite a bit of drama happen throughout Acts. A couple lying, struck dead by the Holy Spirit. This past week, or past few weeks, in Acts chapter 15, we saw a council called to clarify crucial theological doctrine, right? that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law can add nothing to salvation, that it's, it's simply by grace. Last week we saw Paul and Barnabas have a falling out over whether or not to bring Mark with them on their next journey. And that brings us to our text this morning, where Paul begins what will become his second missionary journey. If you recall, he and Barnabas were planning to visit the churches that they had already planted because they have a big heart like God's for other Christians and other churches, heart like we want to have. That's what they were planning to do, but God had other plans. They go their separate ways. And God directs Paul's steps back to Lystra and Derby and to a man named Timothy. Look with me at verse 1. Paul went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman. But his father was Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. This is a very modest introduction to a major biblical figure. Timothy has two letters, two books of our Bible addressed to him by Paul. Paul calls him my true son in the faith, my dearly loved son. He even writes of Timothy's mother and grandmother in 2 Timothy 1 verses 3 through 5. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced 
is in you also. Just know what, what God has done here in Lystra. I mean, this is the place where Paul was initially welcomed as a deity, misunderstood as a deity, welcomed. They tried to worship him as a deity and then stoned near to death subsequently. And here, there is a church. God was at work beneath the surface. The rocks of Lystra could not take the word of the gospel from taking root, springing up, and blooming. Indeed, among those who came to faith in Lystra through Paul's preaching were Lois and Eunice, mother and grandmother of Timothy. It was not by accident that Lois and Eunice came to faith. It wasn't fate that brought Paul to Timothy. It was God. God ordains our relationships. He directs our steps. And so right away, I want to encourage parents and grandparents. Your lives are missionary lives in some ways. You are an evangelist in your own home, in the homes of your grandchildren. Your life is teaching the children in your life something about God, even if it's nothing. You have an incredibly important responsibility. Parents, your home is a mission field, and it is a tough one. What is a field worth plowing? So I want to encourage you to not be discouraged. It might seem as if nothing is happening in the lives of your children. Indeed, their hearts may be harder than stone. You might be just so frustrated that they're not getting it. That they don't know the Lord. But keep praying. Keep loving them. Keep teaching them about God's sacrificial love through your own sacrificial love for them. Because it matters. Every sleepless night matters. Every diaper changed matters. Every nose wiped matters. Every temper tantrum endured with grace matters. In all of those moments, you are teaching about who God is. You're teaching them that God loves them and cares for them and is worthy of their honor and respect. Be encouraged. Eunice and Lois set a great example for us. They encourage us. They let us know that indeed the faith we have can be taught and passed on to our children and our grandchildren. These relationships you have with your kids, grandkids, even someone else's children, there are children in your life, they're not there by accident. No relationship in your life is by coincidence or mistake. It's there because of God. Knowing that your relationships are the result of God's ordination, well, that causes us to respond differently to them. 
think knowing that God has put us in the relationships we are in should fill us with gratitude, encourage us towards evangelism, and make us sober. It should fill us with gratitude. We should be so thankful that God has brought so many different people into our lives and allowed us to enjoy that blessing for however long, whether for many seasons or just a short season. We should press into those relationships, squeeze out all the laughter we can, cry as many tears together as we can, enjoy them. Your relationships are a blessing. Praise God for our friendships. We should also be encouraged towards evangelism. Friend, if you are a Christian, in any relationship you're in, you are to represent Jesus. You are to tell people about Jesus. If that's other Christians, you are to encourage them in the gospel, remind them of our Lord and Savior. And if you are in friendships with non-Christians, which I hope that you are, you are to be telling them of Christ. You are to be telling them that they are in rebellion against the holy, wonderful God who made them in his image. And that they need to repent of their sins so that they can have peace with him. You might have that relationship for that sole purpose. So that they can hear the gospel from your lips. Believe and be saved. How are you doing at that? When was, when was the last time you invited someone to church? Do your friends know that you are a Christian and that you worship Jesus regularly in a church on Sunday morning and that they're invited to come with you? Make sure they do. It's a great responsibility. If you're here and you are a non-Christian, I do want you to consider that perhaps the reason God has you in friendships with a Christian it's just that, so you can hear the Christian gospel about the substitutionary death and life of Jesus Christ. So that you can hear the message of Christianity. That God loves bad people so much, he sent Jesus to die for them so that if they repent of their good works and trust in Jesus, they will be saved from judgment. And that's the message of Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning just so you could hear that message and believe. Knowing our relationships are given to us by God, it also ought to make us sober. It is a great privilege and responsibility to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to consider how well we are stewarding our relationships. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who stewards our relationships well to the honor and glory of our King. We see that God directs our steps, that indeed he ordained the relationship between Paul and Eunice Lois and Timothy. Indeed, he, he directed Paul's steps right to Timothy. At which point, Paul, recognizing the faith that existed in Timothy, the great reputation he had in Lystra and Iconium, decides he wants to bring Timothy with him on what's going to turn into his second missionary journey. 
There's just one small matter they need to attend to first. Look with me at verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him. So he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew his father was a Greek. And as they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders at at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in number. And so we see they deliver this message from the Jerusalem council that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that circumcision isn't required to these churches, and that clarity on doctrine brings them strength in the faith. It it encourages them. It helps them to grow daily. But that makes us ask the question here, why does Paul have Timothy circumcised? Right? We just had this big council. You're saved by grace, not by circumcision. And Paul and Timothy are going from town to town. Hear ye, hear ye. Right? You don't need to be circumcised to be saved. It's by grace. But Timothy, there's one thing you need to do before we go. You need to be circumcised. I don't know what Timothy's response to that was. <laughs> With a letter. It would have been expected of Timothy his mother being a Jewish woman, that he would have indeed indeed been circumcised. And people knew that she hadn't circumcised him because she was married to this Greek person. It's not like there's a checkpoint on the way into the temple or anything. People, People knew about Timothy's lineage. They knew that he was uncircumcised. And so Paul is saying, we're gonna have to get you circumcised, not because that's essential to the gospel or to your salvation, but because... We want to remove any opportunity for something other than the gospel to offend people. We want to make sure that if folks are rejecting our message, it's the message they're rejecting and not us. We want to make every accommodation we possibly can to make the message of Christ crucified for sins plain and clear. Do the same thing today, missionaries in India. Like they don't go to a burger joint to eat, right? Because that would make evangelizing the people in India a little bit more difficult. We have missionaries in predominantly Muslim countries. They, they don't eat pork chops. They have the right to, but they don't. They don't want to hinder their ministry. Or maybe closer to home, uh, what's the first question you ask if you are attending a formal event or even if you're going to a church you've never been to before? What's the dress code, right? What's the dress code? I do it when I go to preach somewhere. That's one of my first questions. What's the dress code? Do I need to wear a coat and tie, or is a coat and tie actually going to distract from the message? I still own ties, just so you know. But I want to know, what what can I do to make sure that I'm not a distraction to the gospel message? That's the same thing they're doing here with Timothy. They're getting rid of any potential distraction. Indeed, we're getting an object lesson of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. So I myself am not under the law to win those under the law. 
to those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. The point of Timothy's circumcision is to make the gospel more easily received from those to whom, by those to whom they are preaching the gospel. Friends, we should follow this example. Not, to, not in terms of circumcision, but in terms of making accommodation. We want to make every effort to accommodate where we can and only die on hills when we have to. Right, that might be a good application point. Don't die on every hill. Like Some ideas and some uh, doctrines and, and some things are, are worth you know, fighting tooth and nail for. Some things are not that big of a deal. So you can accommodate, right? The dress code, you, you can accommodate how you dress. We want to make sure that we aren't providing stumbling blocks to the gospel. We, we want to make sure the gospel does the offending when we are sharing it with others, not us. That's the goal of Timothy's circumcision. And so Timothy, having agreed to suffer for the gospel, is circumcised, and he goes with Paul towards Asia initially. Look with me at verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mesia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mesia, they went down to Troas. So they set out towards Asia. We don't know if this is the Roman province Asia or the Aegean Islands Asia. We're, we're just not certain. But, but they're headed in that direction. That's their intent. And then they are forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. So they're like, all right, they get together, have a little powwow. All right, let's figure out where we're going to go since we can't. that doesn't seem to be a route that's open to us. We'll go to um, Bithynia. Let's go that direction. And then once again, they are prevented by the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, keeps them from going to these specific locales. And you can imagine a bit of their frustration. God, we are trying to obey your great commission. You told us to take the gospel to all nations so that everyone could worship Jesus. We're, we're obeying. We're, we want to do that. Why is nothing working out for us? Why is this so hard? Maybe you can relate to their frustration a little bit. You've made plans, and then they just don't work out the way you thought. You don't get into the college you had hoped to. You didn't get that job you wanted. Marriage wasn't the be-all, end-all you thought it would be. Retirement, you planned for it, but it's, it's not as blissful as you had hoped. You seem just stuck in the same place. And none of it, it doesn't make sense why things are going the way they're going. And that's precisely what's happening here. Proverbs 16.9 says, 
A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. God directs our steps. My plans and God's plans are often not the same plans. And no matter what we do, we will end up right where God wants us to be. And so Paul and company actually set a really good example for us here. They, they decide that it would be a, a good idea to visit these churches, and then they decide that it would be a good idea to go on a missionary expedition. And they do that by uh, taking godly counsel into account, by uh, taking God's word into account. They, they make a decision, and they, they do something. They trust God, and they act. We would do well to follow their model. And what I mean is this, I think oftentimes as Christians, we kind of sit around waiting for God to write in the clouds who we should marry or what we should eat for dinner. We need, God, I need your clear direction on this. I need to know exactly what to do. But God doesn't work that way. When you become a Christian, you're not handed a, uh, you know, God's will for your life, a step-by-step instruction for each and every day for dummies. Right? You don't get that. Paul and them didn't get that. They, they are trusting God's word and they are acting. They're trusting God and they're doing something. That's good and right. To try and figure out specifically, with great 100% precision, what God wants you to do is a Sisyphean task that will leave you in the same place you started. Indeed, God, God does have a specific plan for our lives. But it is not a plan that he expects us to figure out before we make any decisions. He can reroute us pretty easily. Like see book of Jonah. I don't know that Jonah was trying to obey God at all in the beginning there, remember? Still, God got him where he wanted him to be because God directs our steps. And that frees us to trust God and make decisions. Sometimes the best thing we can do when it comes to discerning the will of God in our life is to obey him in a particular direction until he forces us into another one. Right? Make plans, make decisions, trust God and do something, stop doing nothing. Put your plans in pencil. And don't sweat it when God changes them. Just tack a little, if the Lord so wills, onto everything you intend to do. When we submit ourselves to God's guidance in our life, when we put our plans in pencil, we won't freak out when things don't go the way we think that they should go. I don't don't think Paul and company freak out here either. I mean, this is precisely what happens to them. They've trusted God, they're obeying in a particular direction, and God sends them in another direction. I think one of the questions we have when we come to these verses is how? How did God prevent them from going into Asia and from going into Bithynia? We don't know. Unless you saw it in there. I didn't see it in the text. We can speculate, of course. Maybe they, somebody um, heard a voice or... There was a vision, or angels came down. I think because the vision that Paul has in a second here is recorded for us, I think it's much more likely that this is a kind of a hindsight. I don't know that for sure, 
but it seems like maybe somebody just got sick or the terrain was tough. Something went wrong in their attempts to get where they wanted to go and they couldn't get there. And in hindsight, they went, that was the Holy Spirit. How true is that in our own lives? That we can't see God's hand in a situation until we're on the other side of it. It was true in Joseph's life. When he was in the pit, he wasn't going, well, the Spirit of God brought me here. But in hindsight, he was able to go, God planned it for good. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that the Spirit stopped them and redirected them. Friends, we, you don't have to sit back and wait for an angelic vision before you obey God or try to take that next step in your life by making a decision. You can trust His Word. You can make really wise choices and obey in a certain direction, waiting for God to disrupt your plans. It's okay. But you should trust him and you should do something instead of nothing. That's what Paul and company do and God is now rerouting them. And he will give Paul a vision. Look with me in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he'd seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Do note there is a we here, and so Luke, who is the author of Acts, has joined this company at some point. We'll get a few more we clauses throughout Acts, but he's actually here for these events. And it's interesting what he tells us. He tells us that after Paul had seen the vision, we made efforts to set out for Macedonia after concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That word concluding is really interesting. Because what I would have thinked happened, think would have happened, is that Paul woke up in the morning and said, y'all, I had a crazy dream last night. I drank some chocolate milk, ate some pickles, prophetic dream. And we're going to Macedonia. We're headed there. That's not what he does. Uh, Apparently, Paul lays out his dream before the other believers that are with him, and they reason together, coming to a conclusion that indeed, this vision is God's direction to them to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel. It's really interesting. You might not have prophetic dreams, but we can make use of this strategy when discerning God's will. We can make use of pausing for reflection and getting counsel. Pausing for reflection is really, really wise. It's not a matter of time, but of mental activity. Making sure that we are acting in a way that accords with the Scriptures that we've considered all these variables. It's good to pause for reflection when making a decision. We also see uh, that this decision is made in community. Very seldom are the best decisions made in isolation. It's very rare for our best reflecting to happen in solitude. 
The best decision-making and the best reflection actually happens in community. Because other people know stuff and know stuff about us that we don't. They can sharpen the ideas we do have, tell us that some of them make no sense at all. Be really helpful. Friends, too often Christians make each and every decision and the significant decisions in life without any input from anyone outside of their inner circle. They, they, they make the decision without any input from other Christians or from the church. And that's foolishness. It's foolishness. Listen to some of these Proverbs I'll read to you. Proverbs 5.12 A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. Proverbs 13.10 Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. 1522, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. 1920, listen to advice and accept instruction, and in the end you will be wise. It's foolish to not get counsel from other people, especially the church. It's foolish to try and go, well, how am I going to follow Jesus? And make that decision all on your own, without even consulting the people that you are in covenant relationship with who have agreed to help you follow Jesus. That's one of the major roles of being a church. We help one another follow Jesus. And we can help one another discern what God would have us do. This is what Paul does. Make use of this wonderful gift that God has given us in Christian fellowship. Make use of the church. Discerning God's direction in our lives is both personal and communal. Not even the Apostle Paul made decisions in complete solitude. Neither should you. Indeed, Paul is pressed by the Spirit of God, this vision and the wisdom from his counselors to make way towards Philippi. And that's where the rest of chapter 16 will take us into Philippi. But God directing Paul's steps had to seem a little bit weird to him at this point. Can't preach the gospel there, gotta go here. I mean, indeed, God directs our steps, but sometimes his direction can feel disorienting, frustrating, and even sorrowful. I think we do well to keep in mind that whatever our God ordains is right. That no matter uh, the extent of our suffering or our frustration, that we serve a good God who is working all things out for our good and His glory. We serve a God who is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. As Dr. Sproul used to say, there are no maverick molecules. God controls them all. This God is our God. And He is bending history towards His goals. If ever we should doubt this, we need only lift our eyes to Calvary's hill and see His Son beaten and bleeding. If ever we should doubt this, we need only look at the nails in his hands 
and the crown of thorns pressed down upon his head. If ever we should doubt this, we need only look at him, hanging there in humiliation, rejected and reviled. If ever we should doubt that God bends history towards his purpose and his plan, we we need only put our eyes on the broken body of Christ, thrown into a pit to be forgotten. ever we should doubt that God bends history towards his goals, we need only look at the cross. Because what men intended for evil, he meant for good. Just as God raised Joseph out of the pit and set him at the right hand of power in Egypt, so too he raised Jesus up out of the grave and set him at his right hand as the powerful king who holds the keys of death, as the one who has atoned for the sin of everyone who put their faith in him. Just as Joseph was able to deliver his people from famine and from suffering, so too Jesus Christ is able to deliver anyone who calls out to him in faith from their sins and from hell. Praise God! We are saved from our sins. Praise God that Jesus said, it is finished, not I am finished. Praise God he is raised and ruling and reigning. Praise God he directed Jesus' steps to the place of the skull so that he could direct our steps into the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, we do not deserve relationship with you or with one another. Don't deserve your spirit. We don't deserve relationship with Jesus. We deserve hell. And you have given us grace, the opposite of what we deserve. You've given us Christ our Lord. You've adopted us into your family as children. And you guide our steps. You loved us before the foundation of the earth. You created good works for us to walk in. God, help us to trust you and to do things, to take those next steps in our lives. Refusing to wait on perfect 100% direction but trusting your spirit will make sure we end up right where you want us. Lord, we pray that you would give us your spirit, that you would increase our gratitude, what you have done for us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.